Amen. Thank you, Caesar, for sharing your story. Caesar's a, a great guy, and uh, one of the things he does is gets to, I get to spend some time with him. He gets to he gets to drive whoever's preaching from campus to campus every day. So thank you so much for for doing that. And uh, um, so we love you, Caesar. Appreciate it. Well, one of the things we're, we even watched that video is we're on a series. Uh, in the gospel, it's called Bittersweet, this uh, sermon series on the gospel, and, and uh, I'm delighted to be here with you today. I'm not Pastor Chris. Uh, my name's Shane. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, it's so great to be with you. We're on week number, number six in our sermon series, and uh, last week, Pastor Chris talked uh, about our sanctification process, and he talked about uh, how that relates to our anger and how the gospel would talk to, uh, would talk to our anger. And so today, uh, I have the great privilege of te- speaking to you on sexual guilt and shame. He gave me a great topic. The last time I talked about like the tongue, and uh, this is a lot, lot uh, heavier topic today. So, uh, so anyone who knows me knows that I love Chick-fil-A. <coughs> Chick-fil-A is one of my favorite fast food restaurants to eat at. Uh, yes, Zach, it's a good restaurant. Great, great restaurant. Um, I go there a lot. Uh, in fact, when I was doing my sermon, I did my entire prepping and study uh, at Chick-fil-A. I wrote my sermon at Chick-fil-A. There was a great uh, waitress named Ginger who brought me like 100 glasses of iced tea over and over. It kept me going. And um, one day I was driving through the drive through at Chick-fil-A. I was in my, my dad's silver minivan. Who's, what dad's got a silver minivan? Mini, minivans out there? Yes? Uh, I was in my silver minivan with my five children, and they were kind of going crazy. My wife, Katie, wasn't in the car at the time. Pull up to the window, uh, window opens, I hand my credit card to the, to the cashier, and in the background, I see a young lady who attends our church. Uh, her name is Naomi. Okay, what's her name? Naomi. Naomi. Okay, that's her name. But I kind of see her in the background, and for some reason, slip of the mind, I say, I yell out, Noel, how are you doing today? And like all her coworkers are looking at me and I, I didn't know at the time. And uh, she was like really polite, she said hi, and said hi to the kids in the car. I get my first bag of food and I realize, oh shoot, her name's not Noel. Her name's Nicole. <laughs> so, so, <coughs> so I see her, the window opens again, give me my more, more of my food. And I yell, I was like, maybe she didn't hear me. Maybe like it was too loud in the van. So I yell out again, Nicole, how's your day going? And like all her coworkers are looking at me really funny. She was so kind, like engaging conversation with me. And then I was feeling really good. I was like, yes, I have righted my wrong. She had no idea. I called her Noel. And, uh, but <laughs> get my food. And I start driving away. And literally like 10 feet later, I'm driving. I'm like, I literally put my, my head in my hands. And I'm like, oh no. And like my son Jackson's like, what? I'm like, her name is Naomi. And like, he's like laughing at me. And, and, <laughs> So every time, over the few weeks later, I go into Chick-fil-A, I go here at church, I see her, I'm like, Naomi, how are you? And there was just this embarrassment that came upon me every time I saw her. And, and so today we're going to deal with, with that kind of stuff, not, not necessarily embarrassment. There's embarrassment for doing silly things, calling someone the wrong name, but as we delve into sexual immorality, there is this, this heavier guilt and heavier, really, shame that can come on our lives. And so we want to look at what does the gospel say to that. So if you're a caveman or an Eskimo and you happen to be plopped in downtown LA or Hollywood and you spend about three minutes there, you would, you would see instantly the active sexualization of our culture. And it's not anything new. I remember my grandparents talking about it 
30 years ago about where our society, where culture is headed. And I'm stunned now where, where we're at on that. And, and I think about my kids. I got five kids. I think about them 30 years from now. What kind of muck, what kind of mire are they going to have to wade through in this area of sex? And you look at TV and movies and internet and billboards and soap commercials, for goodness sake, and you see all this, the, the, they, they tell us, the society and culture tells us that, that the context of sex doesn't matter. The who and when and, and where and how that happens, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, they'll tell you, the culture will tell you that, that sex is more about taking rather than, than giving. It's more about receiving rather than giving. It's more about how it makes you feel, about satisfying your needs. They'll tell you that it's just a one-dimensional physical act. You do it once, you move on, life goes on. It's become a badge of honor to, to some dudes in our culture about hooking up with, with women. And, and you see where culture is going. And, and culture celebrates casual sex. God intended sex to be good. And we need to go back to the word and, and, and see what God's word has to say. So you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. Okay, God, we all know this. We grew up in church. God creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates animals and trees and fish. And after each day, he said, it is good. Okay, he declares it good. But the last day, he creates Adam. He creates man. At the end of that day, he says, it is very good. He doubles down on the word good. He said, it is doubly good. It is good, good. You see, because we are made in God's image, okay? All men and all women made in God's image. So it's never a toss-up like, hmm, sea turtle eggs, human babies. Which one's more important? I mean, we know it's not hmm, endangered whales or children, okay? Like, humans have infinitely more worth and value than animals. So God creates man. He says it's very good. Then Genesis 2, 23 through 25 comes along. And this is the first R&B love song ever written by Adam. He says, <coughs> then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's talking about Eve. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. And this is the key phrase. And were not ashamed. You see, you see God creates uh, humanity. He creates the world perfect. And in this perfect world, there was no shame. And God created sex and God created man and woman and marriage and intended for it to be good. But if we follow the lies of our culture and the lust that that can create, it leads us down the wrong path and leads us to disordered desires. So, We've seen from previous sermons in this series, Genesis chapter three. Okay, Genesis chapter three is the famous chapter on the fall of man. This is the chapter where it all comes down. Adam and Eve, tempted by the serpent, they eat the fruit, and all of a sudden, it says their eyes are open. Look at Genesis three, seven to eight. Okay, Genesis three, seven to eight says, then the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, basically underwear, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Sin enters, and what's the first instinct? Shame, hiding, leaving, getting away. And so we have these disordered desires in our life. Each one of you do. None of us is perfect. Each one of us has disordered desires for money, for power, for greed, including things like sex. So let me remind you, church, we're going to touch briefly on this and then actually move on, that sexual immorality is wrong. It is a sin. 
Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So sexual immorality here, Paul uses the Greek word called porneia for that word sexual immorality. It's this Greek word that can mean anything from fornication to homosexuality to adultery or pornography or prostitution. It's this this word that covers a wide variety of sexual moralities. He continues in 1 Corinthians 6. He talks to the church at Corinth. He says, church, do not be deceived. He's writing to a church Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revelers, the swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear, and I love how Paul says it. He opens it, and it's like he's writing to us today, Southern California, Foothill Church, 2016. Do not be deceived because you see deception everywhere in our culture today. High school students, do not listen to your friends in this area. Do not be deceived. Sexual immorality is wrong. College student, do not listen to the culture around you. Do not say there's some new idea out there. No, sexual immorality, as Paul says, is wrong. Adult, do not be deceived. Adultery, lusting is wrong. And whether you believe in the Bible or not, whether you are a Christian or not, we all have this in common, and that after there's an act of sexual immorality, there's an amount, a certain amount of shame that comes upon our lives for what we have done. We have all felt that. I have felt that. You feel this guilt, this feeling that you've done something wrong. You feel shame. You feel this, this unworthiness that you are defiled, that you are dirty, that you are unclean. And God and the gospel wants to speak to that this morning. So let me submit to you, actually, church, that the main tragedy in our lives is not that we commit acts of sexual immorality. The main tragedy is not fornication or pornography or adultery or the like. The main tragedy is that many of you were once radical Christians willing to lay your life down and joyfully sacrifice anything to make the name of Jesus known among the nations. But somewhere along the line, it faded away and it gradually, you let the devil use an annoying sense of unworthiness and guilt and shame to lead you to an end of spiritual powerlessness and that dead-end dream of middle-class, lukewarm spirituality of security and comfort. And I'm here today because I do not want us as Christians to spend any moments wasting our lives. I am not here to cure you of, mis- of sexual misconduct. I would love that to happen. I have five children and I would love for all of them to remain sexually pure in their life. But I am not here to to cure you of that. I'm here to proclaim and to preach to you today that I do not want the devil to make a waste of your life because of your sexual defeat and failures. And many of you have been lulled into some sort of nominal, nominal Christianity filling a pew, filling a seat, but lacking the radical obedience that Christ calls us to because we have not been taught how to deal with the sexual guilt and shame that is on our life. I want to focus today not on how to not fail sexually, but I want to focus today how to not have your life made a complete desert wasteland because of what you did last night. So, 
We have 25 minutes left. I want to tackle two subjects, guilt and shame. Okay, the first one we're going to look at, if you're taking notes, guilt. Okay, guilt. Doctrine defeats the devil. Okay, it's called alliteration. All D's. Help you remember this today. Okay, doctrine defeats the devil. What kind of doctrine can defeat the devil? Okay, we looked at Colossians 3.5 earlier, talking about putting to death our, our sexual immorality. But look at Colossians 3.6. After he talks about sexual immorality, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So we, we look and say, well, what things is, is Paul talking about there? The things are what the previous verse talked about. Sexual immorality, evil desires, passion, idolatry. On account of these things, God's wrath is coming. So the first doctrine we need to know and trust and wrap our minds around is God's wrath. I know it's a funny place to start, but this is where we start with our sin. God's wrath. And as I even wrote this sermon, there is this special wrath that rose in me as I talk as I think about how culture celebrates that hookup culture about a guy can just take advantage of some girl or how guys can celebrate, yeah, taking advantage of some girl last week or last night. And then me, even me, who is limited in my wrath, rose a special anger. I have four boys and I have one little girl at the end. She's two. And I think like a decade from now, a decade from now, if some dude just took advantage of my daughter, I mean, I would beat that teenage fool with a bat so fast and you can know if there's like a few weeks that we're like, I'm gone. And you're like, wait, where's Shane? I don't see Shane. The staff is like, well, there's been an incident. Okay, I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't stolen money from the church. I probably beat some dude down for taking, down, taking advantage of my daughter, okay? There is this wrath that rises in me. And God is infinitely more wrathful than I will ever feel. You see, church, hanging over the whole world, okay, hanging over your own life is God's holy and just anger and wrath for your sexual sin, your sin, your immorality, and the reason for salvation, church, is not mainly to get your life cleaned up. The reason for salvation is to save you from the wrath of God, to not be incinerated by the wrath of the Lamb, as Revelation 6 tells us. So, Turn over to Colossians 2, 13 and 14. We were in Colossians 3. Turn one chapter prior, okay? The wrath of God is coming. Look at what Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. See those three words there? Record of debts. There is a record out there, a record of debt, of everything, every sin, every immoral act that you have committed. And if you're like me, it's like that, that movie about Christmas with Santa's naughty and nice list. It's the scroll that goes and goes and out the door. There is this long list of all your record of debt, of all my record of debt. And this record of debt, church, is sufficient to send you to hell. Everything you've done wrong is sufficient to send you to hell. But what does Colossians 2 say? The end, verse 14, this he set aside. So understand God's wrath. Dwell on that for a moment. Think about church. Think a moment, you personally. What sexual sin you have committed in the past? 
What sin have you committed? Let's just start there even. Think it, name it in your mind. That he set aside. And every other thing you have ever done or ever will do, that record of debt, that record of debt, that scroll that rolls around the side of the room, listing all the sins you've done, he nailed it to the cross. God took your record of debt. He put it in his son's hands and drove it through the cross with a nail. God, through his son Jesus, is both the executioner and the executed in one moment. God executed Jesus to cancel your record of debt, nailing it to the cross. He takes our sins, he puts it in his son's hands, all the sins you've ever committed, my sin and your sin. And as that song, sings, that song says that we sing here all the time, then on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. As Pastor Chris mentioned last week, God cannot stand sin. The holy and just God, his wrath is coming. But good news, let's move on from there. What other doctrines can defeat the devil? God's wrath and let her be substitutionary atonement. It's a big word, it's on the screen for you. Substitutionary atonement. So church, whose hands did the nails go through? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Whose sin did Jesus bear on the cross? Ours, not his, he was perfect. You see, Christ stood as a substitute for the punishment that you deserved. This is Colossians 2.14, clear as day, that this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans 8.3 says something similar. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see here that God condemned sin through his son Jesus, through what it says, the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was the perfectness of God, absolutely perfect, wrapped in the imperfectness of humanity. And whose flesh bore the sin? Jesus. But whose sin condemned Jesus? Ours. In the flesh of Jesus, the God-man, God condemned my sin. Your guilt, church, is gone. And we read later in Colossians 2, Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now this verse is interesting. It's right after this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Your record of debt, he nailed to the cross. Then it's this verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the question is, how does the cross triumph over sin and death? When how many of you know that sin is alive and well in each one of our hearts? That our sinful flesh can at times rear its ugly head and take over what we do. How does the cross defeat sin? How does the cross defeat the devil? And we know the devil is powerful. The devil has weapons. The devil can taunt. He can bring guilt and shame. He can tempt you. He can even physically harm your body or kill you, as Job says. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us the, the Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. So how does the cross defeat the devil? The good news, church, is this, that there is only one thing that can send you to hell, and that is unforgiven sin. Unforgiven sin is the only thing that can send you to hell. 
But Christ, being our substitute, stood between the wrath of God and our sin, and Christ took the punishment. So Satan cannot send you to hell because Christ has forgiven your sin. Your guilt is gone because he took the punishment that we deserved. So I know some of you may be thinking, wow, this is great news, Shane. All of my sins, past and present and future, gone. The record of debt nailed to the cross in Jesus' hands. It is finished. Now I can go on sinning. I can continue living how I want to live because my sin is already gone. And the Bible knows about you. And Paul writes about you in Romans 6. Romans 6, 1 says, Can you go on sinning? Do you have a grace, a license to sin now? The answer is by no means. For how how can you who say you have died with Christ in your sin continue to live in it? How can you continue on sinning if you die to your sin? Because if we really live and think that, that we can continue sinning and have a license to sin, then you see no beauty You see no value in the cross of Christ. And we cannot be alive with Christ until we first die with our sin with Christ and be united with him in this way. And the only way to be united with Christ is through faith. And faith, church, is not a performance. It's not something you can add or improve on anything Christ has already done. It's through faith that we see Christ, we see the glory of the cross and what he did for us. And we revel in that. And if all you see in God's grace and his substitutionary atonement is a license to sin, then you do not have saving faith at all. So one last doctrine. We talked about God's wrath, the substitutionary atonement. Last one we're going to look at is justification. Justification. It's going to be on the screen in a moment. Here's the definition of justification. If you're taking notes, write it down. It's good to write. Justification is the act by which God declares you, step one, not only forgiven, but step two, righteous as well. Okay? Justification is the act by which God declares you forgiven, not only forgiven, but righteous as well. Because God requires two things of us. God requires that our sin be punished and God requires that our life be righteous. And since we cannot bear our own punishment for our sin and because we do not have a righteous life, God in his ingenious plan sent his son to accomplish both at the same time. Jesus' life living a righteous life for 30 plus years, his life imputed his righteousness onto us and his death bearing the punishment of God's wrath for us. And it's doctrine like this that helps defeat the devil. As you hear from Caesar in his his testimony video, how you preach the gospel to yourself. You preach theology, how wrong theology leads to wrong living and good theology leads to good living. And you preach this doctrine to yourself. When Satan comes against you and brings guilt and shame upon what you've done, you preach this doctrine to yourself. When there are sexual failures, sexual immorality in your life, you preach this doctrine to yourself that you are not guilty. 
You remind yourself that God's wrath is coming, but that Christ stood between it. And you know that his righteousness has already been achieved so that we have our righteousness in him. And we hold fast to these truths, church, with passion. And when the devil comes against you and says that you are ruled out of Christ's mission, you are ruled out of Christ's kingdom, and that you shouldn't even be here at church today, you fight against that. And you say, doctrine defeats the devil, and you know what Christ has accomplished for you. So that's, that's guilt, but there's a whole nother level. When we deal with sexual failures, there's something beyond guilt, and that's, that's the shame that we feel. We feel this sort of dirtiness, this uncleanness. When we've debased ourselves, um, lowered ourselves to sexual pleasures that we should not, we fall again time and time again, we feel dirty, we feel unclean and not worthy. So we have to remind ourselves, number two, shame, we are adopted. So, to help fight that shame that the enemy wants to bring to us. We will only remember justification. That's one part of it. Yes, I mean, isn't that incredible, church, that God forgave us our sins? I mean, he could have just stopped there. He could have said, your sins are forgiven. You are a blank slate. Great, go. But he didn't stop there. He then said, okay, I have forgiven your sin. Now I'm going to take the righteousness of my son, Jesus. And when I look at you, I now see Jesus's righteousness imputed onto your life. But he didn't even stop there. He could have, he could have left us out and said, you are forgiven, righteous people, go. He adopted us and drew us in as sons and daughters of Christ. And when you become adopted, you have a new family. You take on the new family's name. You drop the old name. You drop the association of the shame of that old name. You take on a brand new name in Christ. Your identity has gone from being a simple man, depraved woman or teenager to becoming a royal child of God. We have been made new because Christ has adopted us. So to help us see this, we're gonna look at two final passages before we end. Okay, so I want you to do this. If you have a Bible or a phone or tablet, go to Genesis 3.15. We're gonna go back as we started at the beginning of the sermon. We started in Genesis. We're gonna go back there. We've looked at this many times. Genesis 3.15, to set it up for you, sin has entered the world, Okay. Uh, Adam and Eve have been tempted. They ate the fruit. They have sinned. God comes on the scene, okay? God comes on the scene and is gonna talk to the serpent, to Eve, and then to Adam. So to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Stop there. Here is the first hope. Here is the first glimmer, the first picture of the gospel. It's the foretelling of Christ coming to bruise the head of the serpents. Keep reading, verse 16. To the woman, he now turns to Eve. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, that he shall rule over you. Then he turns to Adam. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So what happened? Sin of Adam and Eve, there's fallout, there's punishment. Ladies, there's pain and childbearing, amen? 
Yes? Men, you now have to work hard. Money just doesn't grow on trees for you. You can't be lazy and sit on the couch. You have to work hard. You have to sweat. You have to work to provide food and shelter for your family. And finally, the ultimate punishment for men and women alike, that we all die. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Saying, wow, Shane, this is great news. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Genesis 3.21. This This is the gospel. 321. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And at first glance, you may say, okay, yeah, I gave him clothes to wear. When you think back to Genesis 2, one chapter before this, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It says their eyes were opened They knew they were naked. And what did Adam and Eve do for themselves? If you remember, they sewed together loincloths. They made themselves underwear to cover themselves. And then they went and they hid from from God. So in Genesis 3, just one chapter later, don't you think they still have those loincloths on? They still had clothes. But... God covered them. And you see that in our sin, the workings of our own hands to cover ourselves, to cover the shame, to cover the guilt that we feel, church, isn't good enough. God comes on the scene and says, let me cover you. You are adopted sons and daughters. Do you see this church in their sin? You see the gospel. God comes on the scene and his first instinct isn't wrath. His first instinct isn't to completely destroy Adam and Eve and to start over again. His first instinct is covering. God covered them. Do you hear this church? When you fail, when you sin, when you fail sexually, when you catch yourself engaging in acts that you should not be, God has covered you. You are a child of God and God comes on the scene and he covers you. You are adopted sons and daughters into the family of God. You have a new name. You have a new covering because you are adopted I said we had two final scriptures. That was one. Let's go to our last one. Micah. Okay, this is an old book. If you need the table of contents in your Bible, you'll look for this one, you may. Micah chapter seven, okay? An easy way, go to the middle of your Bible and then go left a little more. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, okay? If you get to the New Testament, Matthew, you've gone too far, okay? Micah chapter seven. So I'll give you a second to get there. What do you... So what do, you, what do you do? What do you say to the devil the morning after sexual defeat? What do you do at 9 a.m. in the morning after a 2 a.m. failure? Micah will help us with this. Micah chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. I want you to listen as I read this. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look 
upon his vindication. This is what victory for a Christian looks like the morning after sexual defeat. Let's call this the morning after gospel. This is the gospel you preach to yourself after sexual failure, you have encountered it and given into it. Look at each phrase of Micah. Look at verse, uh, verse eight. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. You're, saying, you're basically saying, you're happy, Satan? You're happy, enemy of my failure? You think you're gonna draw me into your temptation and your deception again? Think again, enemy, for when I fall... I shall rise. Yes, I have fallen. I hate what I've done. I, I echo what Paul said, that I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do, and I, I am grieved at the dishonor I have brought upon Jesus, but hear this, O enemy, I will rise. I will rise. And when I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Yes, I am in darkness. I feel miserable. I feel ashamed. I feel dirty. But this is not all that is true about me. The same God who makes my darkness is also a sustaining light to me in my darkness, for he will not forsake me, and he will cover me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Enemy, yes, this much you say is true. I have sinned. I am bearing the indignation of the Lord. But this enemy is where your truth stops and God's truth begins because he, the very one God who is indignant with me, he will plead my cause. You say he's against me. You say I have no future with him. You say that I am ruled out of God's kingdom for my actions. But Satan, you are a liar and you are the father of lies. And I know that my God, whose son's life is my righteousness, and my God, whose son's death is my punishment, he will execute judgment for me, for me and not against me. And the last phrase in Micah, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And this misery, this misery I now feel God, I will bear it as long as you have ordained. But I know this for sure. I know this, that God, through his son Jesus, is my punishment. And God, through his son Jesus, is my righteousness. And God will bring me out to the light, and I will look upon his righteousness, my Lord and my God. Church, this is what you preach to yourself the morning after. This is what you say at 9 a.m. after your 2 a.m. failure. Because church, don't waste your life. Don't let sexual defeat and failure drive you down and numb you to the radical obedience that God wants to call you to. Don't let it 30 years from now, the numbness of the guilt and the shame drive you to an area of sexual defeat where you allow this spiritual powerlessness and paralysis to set in to a lukewarm, middle-class, comfortable, secure Christianity. Allow God's doctrine, good doctrine, to create good living. 
allow your adopted as sons and daughters to help you with that shame and to know there needs to be no shame because you have a new name. And that new name, God, he has covered you. Your coverings aren't good enough. He has covered you. Amen, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, I'm blown away at your master plan that in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that we see the gospel. God, that our coverings for ourselves aren't good enough. That we need you to cover us and you have. That all of us who are children of God have been covered, have been adopted into your family. God, thank you. God, we worship you for that. That is one reason we sing. That's one reason we come here on a Sunday. It's one reason we gather in our growth groups. It's one reason we give. We worship you and respond because you have covered us and you have adopted us and you have forgiven us and you have imputed upon us your son's righteousness. So God, we thank you. Holy Spirit, empower us. Empower us against the attacks of the enemy as he brings guilt and shame upon our lives for our sexual failures and the mistakes that we make and the sin that we do each day. Give us power against the devil. We love you, God. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Holy Spirit, go with us. In your name we pray, amen.